idea of the message uh, today is instead of functioning like a bunch of consumers as Christians, we need to see as Christians in God's church that we're God's family and to function that way. In, in Ephesians uh, 2.19, we, we looked at a couple of weeks ago the, the first part of this where it says, therefore now no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints of God, and <clears throat> talked about how that we're citizens of God's kingdom. But then the next phrase says that we're members of the household of God. When you think about a household, uh, in, in the time in which this was written, uh, a household would include family members, it could include servants, other people who were uh, living there in the home. But in a figurative spiritual sense here, Paul is basically using the household of God as the family of God. And, and he's saying in Christ, in the church, we're united together as members of the family of God. That, that, that's the big idea that I want us to look at, that I want us to explore today as we develop this phrase from some other uh, places in the Bible, that, that we're members of the family of God, united together in Christ and, and in his church. And I want to try to help us to see you know, what that means and then how to live that out, how we uh, live like family instead of everybody going and doing their own thing. Uh, do you realize that we need a spiritual family? You say, why? Well, the reality is that God did not create us for aloneness but he created us for oneness. I mean, part of being made in the image of God is that we're relational beings. Just God is a relationship within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, he was in relationship with himself before he ever created us. Think about it. How could God be love? How could God be eternal? Who did God love before he created us? He loved himself. The Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the, the, the Father. Uh, that's part of the reason why I believe the Trinity, and part of how it makes sense to me is that God has eternally been in relationship with himself. But if you go back to the Garden of Eden, when God made Adam... He was in perfect fellowship and communion with God. He was over creation. He was in a perfect paradise. But God said, remember he, he, when he created everything, he said it, it, it's good. But here in chapter 2, he says it's not good that man should be alone. Of course, he gave him Eve and, and you know, marriage instituted that. And, but this, I think, goes even deeper than marriage because not everybody's called to, to be married. It shows that we need each other. We're made to be one. We're not made to be alone. We need a spiritual family. And this is one of the benefits of being in Christ. Now, maybe you don't always think it's a benefit. Um, just maybe like you don't always think your in-laws are a benefit or something like that. But uh, the reality is when the church is functioning right, it's a beautiful family. And we need to function like family instead of functioning like a bunch of individualistic consumers. So, what does it mean to be uh, the, the family of God? Well, number one, we need to see that we are children of God adopted by the Father. So being in the family of God, I, want, I want, to, want us to get this picture today that is both a vertical and a horizontal relationship. 
It starts with the reality that we've seen this in Ephesians, that we're separated from God, we're aliens and strangers, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but Jesus came to make us alive, and part of making us alive was reconciling us back to the Father, that he's adopted us into his family, and we're his sons and daughters, and we can call on him not just as God, know him not just as our maker, but we can know him as our Father. And that's one of the things that's different, that's, that's revolutionary about Christianity. But there's a myth that's attached to this. Some people believe in something called uh, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. But God is creator to everyone, but he's only father to those who are adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at what the Bible says in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. It says, But when the fullness of the time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, to to buy us back from the grip of sin. For what purpose? That we might receive the adoption as sons. And sons here is being used very specifically in context uh, because the firstborn son, uh, you know, got the, the biggest percentage of things, so to speak, and in inheritance, he's saying spiritually, we're all male or female, like firstborn sons of God. We're all joint heirs uh, with Jesus Christ. And he says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And Abba was the Aramaic word for daddy or papa. Uh, you know, term of affection. He says, therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So what this is saying is that in a real spiritual relational sense, not just a feeling, not just a sentimental thought, that if our faith is in Jesus Christ, that we've been redeemed from the law, the the curse of the law. We've been redeemed from our sin that we can know God and we can call God Father, that you're his son or daughter and that you've been adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. In December of 2001, Ann Graham Lotz, uh, the the daughter of famous evangelist Billy Graham, his wife Ruth, uh, was interviewed by CNN and she was specifically asked about those who died on 9-11. And so a reporter asked if they were not saved by accepting Christ, would they go to heaven? And you know, the reporter's kind of baiting for, baiting her really. He's trying to be negative here more than positive. But here's her response. She says, in my little book, Heaven, My Father's House, I tell about people who want to visit my father's home in western North Carolina. They drive up the long drive, and he lives up on a mountain, come, up, come to the gate. They knock on the gate and say, Billy Graham, let us in. We've read your books. We've watched you on TV. We've written to you, and we want to come and see you in your house. My father says, depart. I don't know you. You're not a member of my family, and you've not made arrangements to come. But when I drive up the same driveway and knock on the gate, I say, Daddy, this is Ann, and I've come home. The gate is thrown right open, and I go inside because I'm my father's child. Jesus said that heaven is his father's house, speaking of God. Because heaven is God's house, he has the right to decide who comes in and who stays out. 
He says he will welcome anyone inside his home. Anyone can come, but they have to be born again into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. So, it's only through Jesus that we're adopted into the family of God. Anybody can know God as Father as long as you come through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring us to the Father. And, and, and that's good news. I mean, we were spiritual orphans, strangers, aliens, dead, uh, separated, out on our own. But Jesus came to bring us into this relationship with the Father. And he is the only way, but we should thank God that there is a way. I was listening to a, a David Platt sermon at the, at the gym yesterday, and he was talking about when he was on the mission field, having a conversation with a couple of men uh, outside a, a temple, I don't remember which country he said, uh, that, that he was in. And, and basically, they were espousing this philosophy that you know all roads, all religions, all paths, all philosophies ultimately lead uh, to God. And um, he said, well, so is it like this? If you imagine God sitting up on a high mountain and there's all these different paths up to the top of the mountain and, and one person is, is taking one path and another person is taking another path and another religion is taking another path and so on and so forth, but they all lead to the same God. Is that what you're saying? And the men said, yes, that's exactly what you're saying. And he said, well, what, how, how would it sound if instead of uh, us having to climb all these different paths up to God, if God came down to us so we didn't have to climb up to him? And these men said, well, that, that sounds wonderful if God uh, would uh, do that. And he said, well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ because that's what he did for us. Jesus came to redeem us, to bring us back to the Father, so we're adopted into his family. Now, second, so we're adopted, we're children of the Father, but that means that we are brothers and sisters in Christ with Jesus as our big brother. Now, this is something, I don't know if I've ever really even taught about the second part of this phrase before because it's kind of mind-boggling to me. I don't really understand. Uh, it's understand it, but listen to what the Bible says. Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, the Son Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And firstborn means unique, one of a kind. And so what it's saying is Jesus is the Son of God by nature. By relationship, he's the son of the father, God, proceeding forth from God. We're adopted as sons and daughters of God. So we're sons of God, we're children of God, but we're not the son of God. But, but look at what Hebrews says in, in, in chapter 2, starting in verse 9. It says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. 
For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. And that's referring uh, to Jesus being the creator. All things were made by him and for him, for his glory. And bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the creator came and tasted death. He suffered for us so that we could be sons of God, brought to glory. And then notice verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, think about this. This is the grace of God. Do you know that Jesus has a multitude of reasons to be ashamed of me, but because of the cross, he's never going to be ashamed of me or you if, if you're in him. He, he says he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. So in, in a sense, Jesus is totally distinct from us because he's creator, we're creation. He's worthy of our worship. We worship him as the son of God, but at the same time, he has chosen to identify himself with us. He's like our big brother. He's our friend who's with us and for us, and he's been tempted like in every way as we have, yet without sin. And he's walking through life with us, and he understands and empathizes with our temptations and trials and challenges. And he's never going to leave us or forsake us. The Bible says that we're joint heirs with him. So in Christ as our big brother, with God as our father, we are are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's pretty amazing that we can relate to Jesus in this way. So God's our father, we're adopted children. We're brothers and sisters because of that, with Jesus as our big brother. And then number three, we're united together in the Spirit. We're one as the family of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.3 says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I'm not going to say much about this. We'll get to this later on in Ephesians. Other than it's kind of like the glue that holds the church together is the Holy Spirit. And the other thing I would say about this right now is, notice what this says. It says, keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, we have to live in unity, you know, just like a family needs to live in unity, but we're not functioning in a way to try to get united. We are united. We have to keep that unity because the Holy Spirit has fitted and formed us together in the body of Christ, in the family of God, as children of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, then number four, um, we share a common life together in Christ. Now, if you've been in church very much, uh, you've heard the word fellowship, right? Um, We're going to have a fellowship dinner or something like that, or fellowship together, something like that. Um, And and really, we use it a lot as a verb, but it's more of a noun. Notice what 1 John says, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon in our hands of handle concerning the word of life, talking about Jesus. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So remember this vertical, horizontal idea. We're in fellowship 
with God and we're in fellowship with one another. But the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia and what it literally means is common life. We have a common life together in Christ. We, we're, we're alive in Christ and so we share this life together. So fellowship is not really something we do. It's something we have. And we need to live out of that, but you know, it's like a, bi- a biological family shares biological life together. A spiritual family shares spiritual life together. And, and so, if you've ever, like, if you've ever met a Christian, uh, another Christian for the first time, and just felt this instant kinship or bond with them, that's this at play. It's the, it's, you have this common life. You have the same spirit living within you. Uh, I mean, if, if you've like, say, those of you who have been to Honduras on some other kind of mission trip. I mean, if you've met people that are from a completely different culture and just bonded with them. That's this at, at, at play. Uh, I mean, if you have f- Christian friends in another place or whatever, uh, that's this at play. If, if you have uh, Christian friends, brothers and sisters, that you're closer to than some of your biological family, that that's who you would go to in a time of need, that's this at play. We share this common life together in Christ. So, Children of the Father, adopted children of the Father, brothers and sisters in Christ, united by the Spirit, sharing this common life. And, and, and then um, the, the last thing I want to talk about, spend a few minutes here, is, well, how do we actually then live together like a healthy family? And, and there's a lot of things we could say when it comes to this. I, I just want to point out four characteristics of a healthy family because the reality is, now, I'm sure you don't know any families like this, but not every family is healthy, right? I, didn't know, I don't know if you know that or not, but there are uh, some dysfunctional families out there, and uh, there's some dysfunctional church families, too. And, and, and let me say this. When we talk about the, the family of God, I'm really applying it in three ways today, okay? The universal church is the family of God. So every Christian in the world and every Christian in heaven is your brother or sister. Now, probably the most tangible way uh, for us to apply it is in our local church, you know, in a sense, we're an outpost of the family of God here. We need to function like family together. And, and I think practically, if you're a part of true life and in our style of ministry, if you're going to experience really what it means to be the family of God, that's going to come in being involved in a small group. It's not the only way, but I think it's, it's, it's the best way. But what are some characteristics of living like a healthy family? Well, one is love. Love. Look at what the Bible says. It says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. John 13, uh, 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so, uh, you know, families don't always love each other, 
Or sometimes, uh, you know, we, we can say that we love somebody, but love's really an action, and we don't always necessarily treat uh, somebody uh, w- with love. You know, sometimes in, in church, we can sing songs about love or say the right words about love, then talk about somebody behind their back or that kind of thing. But we're called to love each other, to treat uh, each other with love, even those that we don't like, even people that we disagree with. Uh, you know, even somebody that maybe we're not getting along with in the best way, we're still called to love them. Uh, you know, there may be some Christians that, that drive you nuts. There may be some Christians that have some totally different opinions and ideas and, and convictions than you do. And it's okay to disagree, but we're called that all that we do to be done in love. And I think, honestly... If we're real with ourselves, we all, including me, need to ask ourselves the question, is are we really treating each other in love? And some people are easy to love, but how about the more difficult uh, people? And by the way, if you think everybody's a difficult person, the common denominator there is you. You might ought to look in the mirror and wake up and think about that. But, um, you know, if, 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 if somebody is saying some stuff that you don't agree with, Can you still love them? We're called to love. Second, we're called to handle conflict in a godly way. Um, What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but at, at its root, I think it means a couple of things. Talk to each other, not about each other. That's how you handle things in a healthy way. Nothing wrong with conflict in and of itself. Nothing wrong with disagreeing. Nothing wrong with looking at things in a different way. That just makes us human. If we all think exactly the same way, some of us are unnecessary. And we need to have some different viewpoints on some things. But we have to talk to each other, not about each other. Sometimes we have to forgive each other. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, more of your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Now, I think if we just obeyed that one verse, it would eliminate about 90% of the relational problems in the world. Because what do we usually do? If somebody says something to us that we don't like, and notice that verse says, it doesn't say if someone offends you. Sometimes we need to be offended. Listen, somebody's not necessarily wronged you by offending you. I mean, if we're offended, that's more our response. Somebody could tell you exactly what you need to hear. And if you're offended by it, that's your problem. That's not their problem. It says if someone sins against you. But what do we usually do when this happens? If somebody we think wrongs us in some way, says something we don't like, it's usually the first thing we do is go and talk to that person. What do we usually do? You start texting somebody else, right? Uh, talk to somebody else. Or if, um, well, I'm not going to say what I was going to say because I just talked about love. But some people, uh, some people will, will uh, post it on Facebook, and, and you can fill in the commentary in your mind. I won't say what I was going to say other than please don't do that. Um, talk, and, and, and what happens when we do that? 
It's just like pouring gasoline on a fire instead of water on a fire. Sometimes what we've done is we've actually end up falsely accusing somebody. Maybe it's just a misunderstanding. If we didn't talk to them, it could all have been cleared up, and now it's just blown up into something more than it was. Talk to each other, not about each other. But we need to forgive each other sometimes. Sometimes there is a real wrong that's there. But Ephesians 4, uh, 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. If we've been forgiven by God, if we've been graced by God, then we're to turn around and be a conduit of that to others. But I heard Louis Giglio say something this week about this. It's really good, I think. He said, we want a shovel full of grace and forgiveness from God while we tend to want to give a spoonful of grace and forgiveness to other people. And you can't really have it both ways. So, Handle conflict in a godly way. Talk to each other, not about each other. Forgive as we've been forgiven by God. Third, we're called to spiritually build each other up. We, the family of God, the body of Christ, citizens of his kingdom, have been called to build each other up. Now, I'm not saying that I, as a pastor, have been called to build you up. I have. But a lot of what I've been called to is to equip, through the, through the teaching of the Word of God, us to build each other up so we're loving and ministering to each other as brothers and sisters, as members of the same body. Look at what the Bible says, Romans 14, 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify, which means to build uh, up another. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and spiritual songs. Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. When you come to church or go to a small group or whatever, it, it's not just to sing or it's not just to be taught. Scripture commands us to exhort to encourage, to challenge, to, to minister to each other. 1 Peter 1.10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If you're a Christian, you're called to spiritually build up, minister to, uh, let God work through you uh, in, in the lives of other people. So, uh, and once again, I think the best way to do this is to be involved in a small group. A small group at its core and its essence is relational discipleship. I mean, that's, that's really uh, what it boils down to. And uh, it can really be a life-changing experience. Last thing uh, that we're called, and it's not the last thing, last thing I want to mention today that we're called to do, is we're called to care for each other as members of the family of God. This is what the Bible says. Galatians 5.13 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. We have freedom in Christ. Only do not use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying, if you say that you're free in Christ, you're not free to go and sin and indulge your flesh. You're now free to lovingly serve each other. 
You see this, this phrase, one another, that's appearing time after time in these verses? Well, there's dozens of examples of this in the New Testament. And when it talks about one another, it's talking about each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, in God's family. And then it, 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 it applies all these verbs beforehand that we've been reading. And this is how we're to treat each other. Through love, serve one another. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 and 26 says that there should be no schism, no division in the body, but the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We suffer with each other. We rejoice with each other. We bear each other's burdens through love, serve one another. 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. We're, we're called to care for each other. That's what a family does, right? Uh, whatever problems a family has, hopefully it's going to come together and take care of each other in times of need. And that's what we're called to do uh, as the family of God, as the body of Christ. And so, you know, if somebody's going through a, a trial, you pray for them, you visit them, you encourage them, you provide needs, that kind of thing. I mean, we've seen people over the years, uh, particularly in small groups, let uh, other people in the church live with them for a season, give cars, give financial help help, that kind of thing. That's what it means to be the church. Not show up occasionally and be an individualistic consumer, but to live life together as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, like I've said, we, uh, the primary way we do that at True Life is, is through small groups. And so I've asked uh, Sylvia Schnelli if she'd come and uh, share a testimony with us about a recent experience she had in going through a surgery and how her small group ministered to her in that. Good morning, everybody. It's really great to see everybody here. My small group is everything that Pastor Jimmy just talked about. It is wonderful. And I just don't know what I would have done without them. I've been in this small group, Jim and Linda Schrocks, um, for two and a half years. Right after I joined, my daughter passed away. And then that was the beginning of my new life without her. And they were wonderful through all of that. And then I took sick. And just recently, at the beginning of spring in March, um, I took sick again, and I blew another blood clot, and they were there, bring me meals, come and visit me in the hospital, and take me to the hospital. They visited me there, brought me food, anything, and the medicine that I couldn't afford to get, it was provided. Um, I had some issues with my old car, and out of nowhere, there was blessing money to help me get another one. Everything Pastor Jimmy said, it was a total outline of what my small group is all about. They're wonderful, each member. We pray for each other. We pray for each other's families. We eat together. We get recipes. We laugh and we cry. We pray for each other's families. And a small group, as Jimmy said, it's just wonderful, an extension of our church. So I encourage you to find one. Ours is really wonderful. It's 50 and above. 
we always call it the 50, the over 50 group is what we call ours, <laughs> and it's pretty great. So uh, in the bulletin, there's a list of all the groups, and ours is toward the end on the second page with the phone number for Lemon, uh, Linda and Jim. So it's great to see everybody and get plugged in. Um, yeah, I would encourage you to get plugged into a small group. And, you know, I, one of the things that I think this illustrates is something that we've said for a long time at True Life is that you're going to get better pastoral care through a small group than you will from a pastor. Now, that's not to say that you can't come to one of our pastors. I mean, that's certainly appropriate at times. I mean, we have a counselor on staff, so we're not saying that small groups are uh, the only way to get that, but I, I think they are the first and the primary way uh, to get that kind of care. I mean, think about it. Um, you know, uh, I, I didn't even know that Sylvia had something going on again until Jessica told me about it. So I, I called her, and she was on her way to the hospital when I called her, and one of the ladies in her small group was taking her to the hospital. Now, um, I, I don't drive ladies outside of my family somewhere, you know, for appearance sake. So I'm not taking her to the hospital unless Jessica goes into labor at church and there's nobody else around and Ray's not close. Uh, then I'm taking her to the hospital. So you should just know that because... It would not be good if I pass out and she's having to deliver the baby on her own at church. That's probably wouldn't, so it'd probably be preferable for me to take her to the hospital. But and and, and like you, you definitely don't want me like cooking meals for you. This is not aiding anybody's recovery from from an illness. I, I, I don't think you know. What I'm, so what I'm saying, if you have a group of people that are friends that are living life together. Uh, I mean, you're going to get better care than from a pastor that, you know, there's hundreds of people that, uh, you know, have some sort of responsibility for. And so uh, I would encourage you to, to get plugged into a small group. But um, so let me just kind of conclude this. So and just kind of review what we talked about. So through faith in Jesus Christ, we can call God Father. We're his children. We can relate to him that way. We can come to him as a child to a perfect parent. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is our big brother. He's the one who gives us access to the Father. We're united together by the Spirit. We have this common life in Christ. And out of this life, he wants us to live in love and to minister to each other, to care for each other, to learn how to handle conflict in the right way. But, but here's the, the first thing that has to get settled is are you actually a member of the family of God are you a child of God because once again this is not a feeling this is not a sentimental idea it's an objective spiritual reality and so are you a child of God have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you been brought into a relationship uh, with the Father? Do you call on God as your Father? Is there the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life because Jesus is your big brother, that you're trusting him, following him, worshiping him? You've repented of your sins, and you've placed your faith in him and in his finished work on the cross for your salvation. Are you a child of God? If not, I would encourage you to come to God today through faith 
in Jesus Christ. To turn from your sins and turn to him and receive the life that he has, that he offers us. That's what we all ultimately need. And we need God first and foremost. But we also need a spiritual family. Because he didn't, he didn't create us for aloneness. He created us for oneness. He created us to be in fellowship with him. And he can fill that emptiness in our hearts. But he also created us to be in fellowship with each other. Are you a part of the family of God? And you know you can be a part of a church. You can say, I'm a member of a church, those kind of things. That doesn't make you a member of the family of God. Repentance and faith toward God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes you a child of God. Do you know for sure that you are a child of God? Well, if not, I want to give you the opportunity right now to become a child of God. So just ask you, if you would, to bow your heads and to close your eyes.